Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. As we dig into Psalm 67, we think about that opening blessing that comes. The, the psalmist, uh, speaking for the people of Israel, asks God to be merciful, to bless us, and to cause His face to shine upon us. And uh, it causes us to, to wonder sometimes, is there a place for asking God to, to bless us, right? to pour out His goodness upon us? And, and I think the answer is, well, yes, it is okay to ask God for His blessing. The, the question is, why am I asking? What's my motive? What's my heart behind it? And again, the psalm helps us there because right in verse 2, the psalmist gives us the purpose that your way may be known on the earth, that, that God's grace and kindness might be known to all people. So as we ask Him for things, we know actually the Lord tells us to, as His children, to bring our requests to Him. But to make sure that our hearts are in the right place, that it's not just for me, but that it's for His glory, that His way may be known on the earth. Uh, The song we sang at at closing there, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, helps us with that idea. In fact, much of the Christian life is actually about looking back to what God has done. And in light of His grace and mercy and favor upon us, proved at the cross, Our lives are just lived in gratitude. And we say, like the hymn writer in Come Thou Fount, let your goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to you. May I ever be looking back at God's grace in my life with gratitude in such a way that I would just be clinging to Him for His kindness to us. And this is what Psalm 67 teaches us as well. It's written for the chief musician, which means it was meant to be used in worship in Israel. You see that there in the opening, uh, the title to the psalm. It was for some kind of stringed instruments, uh, which we, we had uh, a, a couple stringed instruments today helping us to, to worship. And I suppose technically the piano could count as a stringed instrument, right? That's fair. Uh, but it's written for a string instrument. It's a psalm and it's a song. So this was meant to be sung. The people of Israel were meant to use this in worship. But you'll notice the psalm is consistently a prayer. And we, we sing this way ourselves where in song we ask God to do something. And that's what this psalm is doing as well. It's, it's asking God to do some things. May God be merciful to us and bless us. Then you see it again in verse 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. It's asking God to gather worshipers for his name. That's really the, the main request of this psalm. It's written in what we could call a chiasm. You've ever heard that term before? It refers to the, the letter X, and th- there's no like X design here in the psalm. What it means is that the first and the last point match There's two middle parts that match, and it leads to the very center of the psalm, and so it kind of forms, you know, half of an X, you can imagine that. You could also think of it as a circle. There's an outer ring, two parts that match, the next inner ring that matches, and then the center of the psalm. So look and see if you notice that with me. First of all, verses 1 and 2 are this call upon God for blessing, 
And then look down at verses 6 and 7, and we notice the same thing. God shall bless us. God shall bless us. This call upon God for blessing. So there's our first and last match. Now let's see if we have a match for the next ring of the circle, the next part of the X, verses 3 and 5. Actually, they're exact matches. In this case, let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you, and then repeat it again in verse 5. That leads us to verse 4, which is actually the center of the psalm. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. This is a psalm at its very center that's asking God to bring gladness to the nations. Well, that's a happy prayer request, that, that all people would find joy. But do you notice where that joy is found? For you, God, shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. When will God govern the nations on earth? This is looking forward to God's kingdom. So, the psalm is asking God to give all people joy in His kingdom when He rules righteously, which in New Testament terms mean it's a prayer that the gospel would spread, that all people would hear the gospel, because how do we become citizens of this future kingdom? Well, we must be born again, as Jesus says in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. Otherwise, you cannot enter the kingdom. You must be born again. How are we born again? Well, as John chapter 3 goes on to explain, whoever believes in him, right? So, this is really asking us that the gospel would go forth, that people would trust in Christ as Savior and find gladness in the rule of God. Indeed, what people can be glad in God's rule except those who have found the Lord Jesus Christ in salvation. So it's a beautiful psalm. It's a, it's a missional psalm, and its scope is huge. It's global, and it's worldwide, and it's asking God to spread the glory of his name that all people would submit to his rule, and not just submit, but find joy and gladness under his rule. So here's our prayer as we try to reflect the ideas of this psalm. It's good for us to pray that all nations would be glad as the redeemed worshipers of God. We know this is what God is seeking to do. This is what his plan is for the ages, that the gospel would go forward and that people from every tribe and tongue and nation would be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and would become eternal worshipers of God and that this is where joy and gladness are found. The scriptures are clear about that mission of God. Psalm 67 prays for exactly that. And so we should pray that the gospel would go forth, that people would be gathered as God's worshipers by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Psalm 67 kind of lays out a path for us of how this happens. How do we pray in this way? And so we're going to walk through the psalm a couple verses at a time and understand how this all unfolds. What we're going to see number one today is that we can ask that God's saving grace in our lives would make his saving grace known to all nations. This is the flow of the prayer. 
the psalmist prays that God would be merciful to us. Now, the us here is very clearly the nation of Israel. That's, who the, that's for whom the psalmist is writing. That's where it was sung in Israel's worship. And so he's actually praying that God would be merciful to them, God would bless them, and cause his face to shine upon us. Now, it may be that you hear those words and they sound a little familiar to you. They come from the book of Numbers. And in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, Moses gives to Aaron what is called the priestly blessing. And from Aaron onward, the priests were to read a blessing over the nation of Israel. So this comes from God, and it's in some ways a promise from God to bless the nation of Israel. So in Numbers, it reads like this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Those words sound familiar? You may have heard them before. And so you notice the psalm is is borrowing a few phrases from that priestly blessing. And so this prayer of Israel is actually a request for God to keep his promise to bless Israel. It's there in Numbers chapter 6, and it actually points all the way back to the first time that God promised to bless Israel. Actually, one man named Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and he tells Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. That nation is called Israel. God goes on to tell Abraham, I will bless you. So there's that promise to Abraham that there in Numbers, God is just keeping that same promise to Abraham. And then he says to Abraham something even better. He says that I will curse those who curse you. I will bless those who bless you. So now the blessing is extending beyond Abraham. And then the final statement is one that we all enjoy. He says to Abraham, in you, all nations will be blessed. So God's global plan to bless all people is not something new. It's not something that just popped up in the New Testament, but All along, even back to the blessing to Abraham, God had in view global blessing through Israel. Now, as we study the New Testament, we understand where this blessing came from, right? It came through a person in Abraham that is the descendant of Abraham, a man named Jesus. Not only a descendant of Abraham, but the Son of God himself, by whom God showed his favor, his kindness, his mercy, his blessing to the whole world, that this one man took the sins of the world on his shoulders, paid for them on the cross, died in the place of sinners, rose again from the grave, conquering the sin and death of mankind, and then offering to all people salvation in his name, both the forgiveness of sins and the justification, the being declared righteous in the name of Christ. Peace with God, entrance into God's eternal kingdom. You see, this is how God, through Abraham, has blessed all nations in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, does this match with what the psalmist is saying here in verses 1 and 2? Well, he calls God to bless them, 
But we come to verse 2 and we understand the reason why. That your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. These are parallel phrases, meaning they're somewhat synonymous in their repetition. So the first phrase says, your way may be known on earth. Now let's see what the kind of parallel meanings are. Your way parallels with your salvation may be known where? Among all nations. And so the parallel, earth and all nations are somewhat synonymous. Your way, your salvation are somewhat synonymous. So the goal of God's blessing to Israel is not that it would just be theirs to be blessed, but that that blessing would spread to all people so that God's salvation would be known everywhere. Now, there's a rich truth in that parallel. The psalmist says that your way would be known. What is God's way? His salvation. It means that our God is a saving God. Israel knew this well. How many times had Israel gotten themselves into trouble in their disobedience and needed to cry out again to God to be merciful to them and found that God time and time again showed them His way, that He's a saving God. And He came to their rescue and their aid. And so the psalmist wants all people to know that this is what God is like. He's a saving God. He delights to show His grace and His favor and His mercy. And now, as New Testament believers looking back on the mercy and grace and favor of God, we see that bright picture of His salvation, of His mercy in the person of Jesus Christ. That God loved the world by sending Jesus to save us from our sin. Indeed, we have a God of salvation. It's His way. And our desire with the psalmist should be that all people on earth, every tribe and tongue and people group would know that our God is a saving God. This is a beautiful prayer. For us, it looks back. You see, the children of Israel uh, were in a relationship with God where if they obeyed the Mosaic law, then God would bless them. If they disobeyed the Mosaic law, then God would bring curses and, and punishments upon them. Our relationship with God is different. We do not relate to God through the Mosaic Covenant. We relate to God through Jesus. And something magnificent has happened in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we trust in Christ as Savior, we're not brought into this relationship of blessing and curses from God. Because when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, all our sins are washed away. That hadn't happened for Israel who had to offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. But we have believed in the once for all sacrifice who's washed away all our sins, even the things, friends, that you haven't done yet. God knows of them, chose to love you, and sent his son to pay for those things. Not only that, in faith in Christ are your sins washed away, but then God brings the righteousness of Jesus Christ and places that on your account. And so in New Testament terms, we're told that we're in Christ We're dressed in the righteous robes of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when the Father looks down upon us, He forever sees the Son in whom He is well pleased. And so no matter how I'm doing that day, no matter where my heart is, my Father looks down on me with pleasure. 
Now, there are times when his love needs to discipline me to turn back to him. But notice that then it's even his love that's reaching out to me and not his wrath. Why? Because the wrath has been paid in full by the Son. And I've received the righteousness of the Son. So, so friends, this saving grace demonstrated on the cross and applied to your life by faith in Jesus Christ is once for all saving grace. It means that you are forever permanently favored by God. It means that everything that happens in your life happens only because of His favor upon you. Even the hard things that happen do not mean that God has turned His favor away from you. They're reminders of His love and His grace and His plan. And even in the hard times, we lean on the favor of God. Now, certainly, we can ask God for more grace, ask God for for help in our times of need, but it's important to remember what Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It's our position We're in grace, forever completely surrounded, engulfed, and covered by the grace of God. That's where we are. And so, friends, His saving grace in our lives ought to make His saving grace known to all nations. Maybe you've talked with somebody before and asked how they're doing. Hey, how's it going? What's up? How are you doing today? And they respond to you, well, better than I deserve. Now, there's nothing wrong with that phrase. I had a friend in seminary that decided he was going to respond every time somebody asked that question, he was going to respond that way. And I appreciated his heart behind it, but as I got used to that, it was hard for me to know always how to respond to that. Hey, how you doing today? Better than I deserve. Mm, Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's true. You know, it's hard to know what to say in response. Now, I'm not trying to be critical. It may be that you say that in response, and that might be a really good thing to say, depending on, you know, what's going on in your own heart, if you really believe that that's true. But the the fact of the matter is, I actually do really believe it's true. Now, it may not be the best way always to respond to people. It might close the door to conversation and things like that. But, oh, that we would actually remember that in our heads. That the reality is, because of the favor of God, I am forever, in every moment, always doing better than I deserve. This is what the cross preaches in our lives. You want to know what I deserve? You want to know what my life should look like? Then look at Jesus on the cross. That's what my life should look like. Romans 5 verses 14 and 15 makes this clear. We judge thus. If one died for all, then all died. Right? If Jesus had to die for the sins of the whole world, then what we see in Jesus is a picture of what we all deserve, where we should be at this very moment. I should be on the cross, paying for my sins. So any day that I'm not there, I'm doing better than I deserve. You see, God has favored us by His grace. He's given us not what we deserve, death on the cross, but instead He's given us the very favor of His Son, that we would stand in His grace forevermore. 
Now, it is fine for us to come to him and to ask for help and to ask for mercy. In fact, he's told us to bring our request to him, but remember how he's told us to come. It's not as those who, who oh, well, how's God going to respond and what's he going to do? No, we come as those in the name of Christ. We come with boldness before the throne because of what Christ has done. And then we leave the throne with confidence as well because we know however God answers my request is his favor. It's his goodness. God's yes and God's no in my life both come from his love and his favor because that's his eternal choice about me based on the work of his son on the cross. Isn't that encouraging? So encouraging. And so, friends, we ask that his saving grace in our lives would make his saving grace known to others. What does this look like practically? Just think briefly with me here. If God's saving grace has impacted me in these ways, then one of the things that will be seen in my life is gratitude and contentment. The New Testament is clear about this. If I'm thankful for what Jesus has done for me, if I see myself as favored by God and the grace of Jesus Christ, then my life will be full of gratitude and contentment. Be content with such things as you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'll look at my life and I'll be thankful to God. And think of the ways that that gratitude and contentment is unknown in this world. It's different than what people around us experience, it makes the gospel stand out. How are you so thankful through this trial? Oh, let me tell you about the kindness of God in my life. It will also show up in repentance and joy in God's forgiveness. When I know that I'm completely in God's favor, there's nothing keeping me from radical repentance of sin. I can't lose his favor, meaning there's no reason to keep my sin hidden anymore. That when I've sinned, because I know God has loved me in Christ, that I should just get it out in the open, confess it to him and to others, and live passionately to get it out of my life. See, gratitude for the grace of God, knowing that I'm forever in his favor, frees me to confess my sin and to hate it and to move away from it. Another sign that I'm delighting in the grace of God will be security and confidence. God's saving grace frees me from the fear of man. I don't have to worry what people think of me because I know what God thinks of me. I can live solidly in God's view of my life, which is utter favor and grace in His Son. This gives me security and confidence that makes God's favor obvious to the world. Another one, joy. This might be the greatest one. This is the one that Psalm 67 will focus in on next. When we know God's favor, when we know God's saving grace, it results in a joy that the world does not have and does not know. That joy is rooted in a right relationship with God. This is the goal of this psalm, that the nations would be glad and sing for joy in the Lord. I wonder, are we glad in the Lord? Do you delight in his saving grace and favor? Are you growing in your love for him because of what he did for you through his son on the cross?
God's mission should be our mission and should be the mission of all our prayers. It should be the gladness of all people as redeemed worshipers of God. And we can do that as we ask that God's saving grace in our lives would be seen by all people and spread the news of his saving grace. As we continue in the psalm, we come number two to verses three and four. And here we can ask that God's sovereign rule would be the joy of all nations. Now, that's an interesting thing to pray for. We don't think of praying that way. That's exactly what the psalmist prays for here, that God's sovereign rule would be the joy of all nations. Verse 3 is our parallel with verse 5, and it's this call to God. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And again, it's, it's just talking about everyone on earth, that they would, oh, that they would become worshipers of God. That's the cry of verse 3. It's repeated in similar fashion in verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. This, this glad worship, this happy praise of God, joyful worship and exaltation of the Lord. It's for all people. Commenting on these verses in his book on missions entitled, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper says this about these verses, Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring nations into the white, hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. This is a beautiful prayer that all people would find joy in a right relationship with God as his redeemed worshipers. The reason for this joy comes at the end of verse 4, for God shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. And we talked already about when that will happen. Now, of course, God is just and righteous now. That has not changed. He's always just and righteous. Uh, But for a time, he's allowed the prince of the power of the air to rule this world, Satan. And we see the effects of our sin, the fall, and the earth around us, and the world around us, and the the evil and wickedness. And God is waiting patiently for the day when he will set all things right. That day is coming. In scripture, it's sometimes called the day of the Lord, when God will put down once and for all, all evil, including Satan himself, And will rule in righteousness forevermore. And it is good and right for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to look forward to that day and to long for that day. But notice something interesting. That's the reason for the gladness of the nations. Indeed, we have to admit that there is no joy and gladness without submission to the righteous rule of God. One way to think of eternity is just that. Submission to the rule of God. One of the ways that we prepare ourselves well for eternity is today to submit to the rule of God. Because this is what we will do forevermore. We will bow the knee to His glory and praise and righteousness and honor. We will submit to Him and worship Him. 
This reminds us in ways of the Lord's Prayer, the the prayer that Jesus taught his followers when he looked to his Father in, in heaven and said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What did he pray next? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Submission to the rule of the Father. Many Christians struggle in the Christian life because we push back on bowing our knees in submission to His rule today. Now, a Christian, I think, can do that temporarily. But with God's Spirit, I believe all true believers, part of what it is to to be a believer is to come to the point where I will bow the knee to my sovereign Lord. This is, in fact, what will happen It's the goal of all things that Jesus died and rose again, as Philippians chapter 2 says, and was then exalted on high. Why? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's important that we learn to bow the knee in our personal lives so that the nations see that that's where gladness is found. That's where joy is found in living for the one who died for us. Maybe you've played a game before with no rules. (laughs) Is it really a game if it has no rules? I don't know. I played a game one time with very few rules. Uh, I was at a camp and uh, our team of uh, college students was there uh, doing ministry at this camp. And uh, the game director for the week decided it was time to play a new game. And uh, so it had a few rules. Uh, They called it soccer, and so at first I got excited. I thought, hey, this is going to be fun. Uh, But then they began subtracting rules from the game of soccer. In fact, it basically got down to one rule. The, The goal was to put the ball in the net, and you could kind of go about it however you wanted to. You could use your hands. You could use anything. And in fact, you could tackle and and punch and fight and kick and they were literally they had subtracted every rule except the rule of the goal is to get the ball in the net right Uh, and so we we played this game and you know you know the end of the story I'm here living today but I I remember entering into this game thinking to myself I don't think this is fun (laughs) I really don't care about winning I just want to live right you know, so some of these campers were already quite large, and so you know the, the ball's kind of bouncing nearby, and you see four or five of them ready to collide, and you just kind of take a step back and say, go ahead. You have it. In uh, talking to the game director later, uh, he described to me how uh, he was pretty sure that every time they played that game, they had to make a call to ER to have somebody come with an ambulance and take somebody to the hospital. And I said, why, why are we playing this game? So... Don't worry, that game is not played at IRBC. So those of you sending your junior boys to camp this week, rest easy. They do not play that at our camp here in the state of Iowa. You take away the rules. You take away the terms of engagement, and games like that suddenly lose their fun. Anything goes, and anything, anybody can do whatever they want. Scripture is clear that joy is actually found within the structures of God within his rule. Jesus told his disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you 
free. True freedom is found in a recognition, the boundaries of the truth, what God says, what is real and what is right and what is true. That's where joy is found, submitting to God's rule. And so it's a good reminder to us to pray for this and in our own lives to demonstrate the joy of submission to God and His law, His word, His way of living as described to us in the Scriptures. This leads us to the final section of the psalm where number three today, we ask that God's fulfilled promises would cause all nations to fear Him. Verse 5 is repeated here. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. So again, the scope is global, that all people would praise the Lord. Verse 6, I think, looks forward to a fulfilled promise of God. Because as you come through the rest of verse 6 and 7, we have forward-looking words. God, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. And all the ends of the earth shall fear him. However, the first phrase of verse 6 can be translated different ways. And so some of your Bibles might actually put it in the past tense. The earth has yielded her increase or something along those lines. It's what is called the perfect tense. There is a way to translate the perfect tense in what's called the prophetic perfect, which is sometimes in prophecy, the prophet looks forward to the future with such surety that he speaks of it in the past tense. And I think based on the other future tenses in verses 6 and 7, that I think that's the same thing is true there at the beginning of verse 6, that this is talking about the future. The earth will yield its increase. The question is, what is the psalmist referring to? I think the psalmist writing for Israel is referring to the promise of God, a time when Israel would dwell in the land in bounty and in the provision of God. We have a promise such as this in Zechariah chapter 8 verses 12 and 13. There it says, for the seed shall be prosperous The vine shall give its fruit. The ground shall give her increase. I will cause the remnant of this people, that's of course Israel, to possess all these. And it shall come to pass that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. And that's written in Zechariah towards the end of the life cycle of the nation of Israel as we, as we know it looking back. And so I think it's looking forward to a time when God will regather Israel and will fulfill this promise to them that they will dwell in the land in abundance. Now we have a clue as to what time this might be as we look back at verse 4. When was verse 4 talking about when God would judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth? That's looking forward to the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. And I think verse 6 and 7 are looking forward to that millennial kingdom as well. A time when Israel will dwell in the land and God's blessing would be abundant for them. The land would produce its fruit. In fact, the words the earth are more literally the land. I think it's again the promised land here. So Israel, the psalmist for Israel, is looking to the promise of God, is asking God to keep his promise to bless them in the land. Why? End of verse 7, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Now we know this will also happen in God's kingdom. 
that all nations, even those who would still seek to resist him, will look and bow the knee to Jesus. They'll fear him. They'll recognize his rule and his reign, and God will bless his people. So these last couple verses are looking for God to fulfill his promises in the future so that all people would fear the Lord, would awe and respect and revere the God who keeps his word. Indeed, God's fulfilled promises should cause all nations to fear him. And this is something that we can look for and pray for and ask the Lord for. There are times in life that we're awed by something. This is common in the realm of illusionists, those who do little tricks. You know, they'll, they'll often add to the trick some kind of grand uh, spectacle to put the audience in. Oh, wow, this is, you know, this is amazing. I can't believe he did that, right? It just adds to the scheme. You can think maybe of uh, the book The Wonderful Wizard of Oz by L. Frank Baum. And as we read a book, or maybe you've seen the movie, uh, w- what's happening is the, the reader is intended to uh, set their hopes on this great Wizard of Oz, right? Dorothy's in the foreign land, and she wants to get home to Kansas, and, or Iowa maybe, but anyway, she wants to get home to her, to her home, to Kansas, and everyone she talks to said, ah, we need to talk to the wizard, we need to talk to the wizard, we need to talk to the wizard, and so the reader gets their hopes up, and then we're finally introduced to the wizard, and there's this grand display of this great deep voice, and the smoke, and the lights, and all of these things, and then the little dog, Toto, happens to grab the screen, and it all comes crumbling down, and it's just a guy, and then he has no real powers. He never followed through on his word a day in his life. In fact, he was deceiving. And it's all revealed that it was just theatrics to try to gain respect. But there is one who always keeps his promises, whose word is always true. Awe of our Father, of our Lord, is the right response to his faithful promises. And as a people, one of our goals should be to proclaim the genuine greatness of his name, that he is a God who keeps his word. He is a God who fulfills his promises. And one of the ways we do that is we look forward to what he's predicted in the future. We know what's coming and we praise God for that. And our confidence in his promises speaks to our awe of him. Another way we do this is by looking back at his fulfilled promises with a sense of awe and delight. To pause, to remember the ways that he has been faithful. A great place to start is your own salvation. That as he promised, he would cleanse you of your sins by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he has done. See, we can look back at God's promises. We can look forward at God's promises And both should cause us to grow in our view of God, to grow in our awe of Him and our worship of Him, and that should spread to those around us as they see our respect for His Word and His promises. And so as we think about this rich psalm, this psalm that calls all people to praise the Lord, we indeed come before the Lord ourselves today and ask that Through our very lives, the glory of God would be known. As we think about that in the life of our church, 
We think about our location here in Grimes. Now, we've gathered today to remember and be encouraged together about the the favor of our God and the kindness of our God and the way of our God, that He's a saving God. And so then we go from here, infiltrating all peoples, as it were, in our workplace and in our neighborhood and in our families and in our other acquaintances and so forth. And as that gospel favor of God in our lives shapes the way we view things and the way we respond and we see that confidence in his love, news of his saving grace, his salvation begins to spread. As people see joy in our lives, in our sweet submission to our Lord, news of his righteous rule and his good word begins to spread. And the gospel begins to go forth and people see that there's something different about those who follow God. Is this not what Jesus told his disciples to do in John chapter 13? Love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this will all people Know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. A psalm like this calls us to look to God and how he has favored us, how he has loved us. But it doesn't call us to stop there. It calls us the same way that Jesus calls us in John chapter 13. That the way he has loved us would then define how we love for others. Why? So that all people would know that we are his disciples, to the glory of God the Father. Father, we thank you so much for this rich psalm. And our desire is indeed that word would spread from this place across the globe about the salvation available in the name of Jesus Christ. May we be a people who are focused on praising you in this way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.